You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the 145th episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Daniel Aaron Dilger. Hey, how's it going? Brilliant. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. How are you doing? Well, I'm kind of worn ragged. This is the, the week, <laughs> the first week of a new a product is always kind of hectic, but this one is particularly so because there's so much new to check out. And uh, we all kind of race against everyone's reviewing the iPhone races against time to get out your initial thoughts before they're old <laughs> when they're still newsworthy. Um, so there's a little bit of rushing and do a lot of preparation beforehand to kind of outline all the things that I want to check and verify and look into. Um, and even though I do that, it's still, there's tons of stuff that come out that are like, I didn't even know that was the case. <laughs> you know, I have to research it. So yeah, it's like exhausting on quite a number of levels. Definitely. So as we record this, a couple of different things are happening. One of them is that there are, there, there's the Apple earnings call that's going to take place in about an hour. So we're, we're going to not cover that during this podcast. There's also people ramping up for the, the November 3rd availability in stores of the iPhone X. So there are people lining up and things like that internationally. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that 10 years later, people are still lining up. But I guess that makes sense, uh, because especially this year, because of the constrained availability, or at least perceived. I, I don't know how many have been set up. But, you know, we had analysts coming on saying that there's only going to be 3 million. And, you know, that sounds like ridiculous. They obviously built more than 3 million. The summary of all of those rumors that they're all in agreement on is that there's all consensus that there is short supply compared to what would be hoped for. And and that seems to bear out with the pre-ordering process as well, right? We watched people who clicked to try and buy and were greeted with dates that were shipping later than, than they'd hoped, right? That That happens. That's especially what happens when you're in short supply. But what's interesting about the long lines condition is that we'd had Angela Arendt say in years past that they were doing things to try and prevent the long lines, that they were going to prevent the need to have to line up outside the store. And for this phone, for this launch, that's just not the case. Well, um, yes. I mean, if, if there's lines, people are saying, why, why are people so stupid to sit in line and why can't Apple do a better job of getting this out? And I remember, you know, over the last 10 years, I've waited in several of those lines um, at first just for fun. And then it was kind of you know, reporting on the <laughs> the fact that there are lines. And it was almost kind of annoying. It was like, look at all these people that are losing a day of productivity just because Apple's like doing it in a way that's like not very efficient. So, I mean, part of it is, you know, Apple ramped up. Apple was a much smaller company when the iPhone came out. Over the last 10 years, Apple has dramatically grown in many ways. And so it's easy to lose track of that and, and not think that a lot of things have been changing over the last 10 years. But, um, you know, 10 years ago, Apple was smaller than Microsoft and Google and, you know, number of other companies. Even in uh, 2010 with the iPad launch, the initial iPad, there were still many people lining up. I, I was among them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that was a, a thing. And at the same time, people, you know, analysts, when, when the, the lines were sort of ameliorated by pre-ordering and kind of a more efficient ordering process, Supple got that down. It's an incredible task. They, they sell more phones in the first month than most other phone makers sell of their, you know, premium lines. In a year. It's true. It's so, true. So for and the last several years, Apple hasn't said how many they've sold in the first, you know, three days of whatever. Uh, but they were selling, they were saying that back until I think iPhone 6S. So I think the 5S was something like 9 million in the first weekend. And then the next year it was 10 million. And the next year it was 11 million. I think that was the success. And then they stopped, or maybe they said 13, maybe they got to, I think they got to 13 million. So, I mean, 
that's a lot of phones. That's many more phones than um, other premium phones typically. Sure, sell. and there, you know, this has been a thing that other premium phone manufacturers have poked fun at in advertisements. You know, there was the Samsung ads a couple of years ago that made fun of people waiting in line. Yeah, no lines, no waiting. <laughs> Come over to aisle nine. <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah, we can we can sell you a phone right now. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you two for free if you buy one. And here's the tablet. Absolutely. <clears throat> but there are lines in Japan. There are lines in Australia. There are lines in Singapore. There are lines that are already, uh, you know, going around two blocks in, in Osaka. It's, it's all over that this is still happening. And, and even in America, uh, there are people beginning to form lines for the iPhone outside Apple stores. Now, obviously, that's not possible in all locations because there are malls with security restrictions and things like that. But uh, it is unknown how many units will be at any particular store. So uh, many people could go home disappointed. Right. I, I think I think if Apple knew that they didn't have enough to satiate a, a reasonable amount of demand, that they wouldn't be promoting it the way that they are. I mean, it would be more of a, you know, they didn't tell people to wait in line for Air, or, um, AirPods. They said, you know, this is back ordered. They've done that with other products too. Said, you know, we just we're making these available, but you probably just can't show up the store and grab them. So, um, yeah, I think there's actually going to be a pretty good supply. I mean, Apple's been working. This is what Apple does. That's Apple's core competency in from the top down. That's that's Tim Cook's Apple. Is he's really good at orchestrating demand or orchestrating operations. That's what he does. Right, but they have line management down as well. They've been doing this for, as you say, 10 years. So they know that when they have people lining up that they can hand out a card and say, this is your, you know, what, what carrier do you want? What size storage capacity do you want? Right. Here's a card, wait in line. When you get up, present the card, we'll go get the phone. And, and this kind of works. And they, they know how many phones that they have on hand. They don't hand out cards more than that. So that for the most part, people understand where they are in line and what they're really going to get or not get. Right. It's not that they get it, wait all this time and get up into the store and find out that they've got nothing. It's that they find out pretty quickly. I mean, that's retailing. What I'm talking about is the... You're, yeah, you're talking the about the supply to, chain that, that yeah. precedes that. Right. And, and not just being able to produce them, but to be able to plan out a product. A lot of people kind of, give, um, kind of skip over what Apple does, what they're good at. And one of the things that they're really good at is knowing how to put together a package of you know, what we call features... To, to deliver those features, you have to develop the technologies to support them. So there's a lot of technologies that Apple isn't even talking about in the in the new phone. There's you know for, you know new frameworks and a lot of technical details. Apple didn't say much about the refresh rate. The, the touch uh, the touch panel is twice as fast, and it gives you this just buttery smooth feeling in animations where you, it's hard to say why it's happening. I mean, when you look at it, you just it just feels qualitatively better. And there's a lot of things like that. You know, obviously Apple does you know gush about the screen and how you know the contrast ratio is terribly high. Um, but a lot of what Apple is about is creating an experience, and that requires a lot of work to get everything right. It's much easier to just get up and you know say here's a bunch of checklist features, and other companies are very good at doing that. You know, Samsung gets up and they say we have this and this and this, and people say, oh, why doesn't Apple have that? You know, why don't they have a bent screen? When is Apple's bent screen coming out? And it's like, it's not coming out because Apple's not, you know, following Samsung's direction. They have their own ideas what they're doing. They have their own product plan. Yeah. And, and, and like and, Google changes the narrative. That, you know, they say, oh, we have a phone that does Apple's feature from last year and it only requires one camera and we do it in machine learning. And, you know, it's synthetic. You know, it's kind of a, a fact that 
that we have made happen, which is, you know, interesting. But um, the media kind of comes back from that. I mean, a lot of the mainstream media says, oh, look, Apple's, or, you know, Google's able to do this with one one camera. And it's like, well, they're not exactly doing the same thing and the result isn't the same. But, you know, I, th- I don't think things should be compared as a check feature checklist. And I try not to do that in my review. I tried to kind of give a kind of an experience of what Apple's doing with it, what it means for the future, and, you know, how it relates to what people are using, how, how people are going to be using it in their real life. One of the things that I wanted to mention before we get to that is uh, on this program, we've talked in several weeks past about all of the different rumors that led up to this announcement that led up to this with possible changes in the device. You know, uh, uh, will they, won't they put touch ID underneath the screen? Will they, will they put touch ID in the back of the device? Will they, won't they do the, uh, the Qi wireless charging? And there were a lot of rumors that suggested that the device was not locked down, that Apple's plans were not already decided. And at those times, Neil and I would talk about how Apple had to know long before if they were going to be in production. You, you, You can't just suddenly decide two months before production that you're going to make a sweeping change or right. that you've got something that's up in the air. You have unless, to lock the design. Unless you're, unless you're Microsoft or uh, what was it? Motorola and Google. <laughs> they like came to market with a thing with a circle in the back. I was like, well, that was going to be our test sensor, but we couldn't get it together. Right. So there are and, companies that do that, but Apple, well, and, and Apple has done things doesn't. in the past, but they've done things where they, they, you know, the iPod touch generation three had a space. If you took the back cover off, there was an empty space where the camera had been meant to go. And all the rumors said there was going to be a camera. And so it's pretty easy to do the math and say, yes, that's where the camera was supposed to go. And they pulled it. Fine. But Apple pretty much, if they decide they're going for something, they aren't going to give themselves an out and spend time on the diversion of doing a half measure or diversion of having two paths, a backup plan, if you will. Right. So what's interesting is that there were, you know, all these reports were going on, but there was a, a quote from, I think, Dan Riccio. Who, who said that they went all in on Touch ID when they decided to drop the home button. They, they, just, they just forgot about all of the other options out there and said, we're going to go with Face ID. And that's that. And that this wasn't a last-minute design change. They didn't have time for that. They were on such a fast track to do this thing that they had to lock the design early. So they locked the design last November. And I think this is the first time that we've ever had a quote from someone at Apple who said, who lets you know exactly how long ago something was locked. And so I found it interesting to know that they had locked the design pretty much one year before public availability. Right. There was a, a, a similar comment earlier talking about how long in advance they'd started work on the neural net, you know, the, the A11 bionic yes. chip, you know, parts of it. <clears throat> and I, I think, though, that the way you stated it is maybe the negative of, I don't think Apple said, we're definitely going to stop using the home button. I think the real realization was, this new technology that we bought, you know, when, when they start looking into 3D sensors or camera systems was back in uh, 2013, I believe, the first acquisition mm-hmm. they made. I'm sure they did work before that in looking into it. Um, but they, the, the difference was not that they decided to get rid of the touch button, but that they had put together technology with Face ID. They got to a point where it was like, this is now going to work well enough to where we can put it on a phone. And I think the original target that they said was 2018 and actually delivered in advance of that. And that, that sort of explains why the eight and the 10 were released in parallel. Although I, if they'd waited for another year, um, 
I think it was kind of important that they come up with the 10 because I think a lot of people would look and say that, wow, the 8 is the best you can do, that you didn't do some dramatic change to the body. Well, so that, that was really the same complaint that. that happened with the 7 as well. Right. So the, the quotes that I'm looking at right now say that it was around 2014 that they decided to include the neural engine inside the CPU that eventually would become the A11 Bionic. And that with, with the Face ID, that they had it in line of sight for the 2018 launch. Sure. Um, but they, they, with a lot of hard work, they were going to be able to deliver it this year. The quote here is that they spent no time looking at putting fingerprints on the back or through the glass or on the side. That they believed in the quality of Face ID security and screen unlocking, and there simply wasn't time to look at anything regarding Touch ID. They were all in on Face ID. Right. I mean, I think most of that speculation was based on the fact that Apple had filed a patent related mm-hmm. to something that maybe portrayed it on the back or something like that. Right. And but you know, we, we Apple, know that Apple you file filed patents, patents on a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, that too. But there's a lot of things that Apple, in just in general, they file patents on things that are not going anywhere. We've seen tons of examples of that. It's just like, here's an idea, and we're patenting it because we developed this technology. Um, because everybody else also is filing patents, whether they're producing things or not. So if, if everyone else is just like documenting, hey, we discovered this, we discovered this, um, it puts companies in a bad position if they don't have, you know, if they're not patenting everything that can be patented. That's yeah, basic protection. Right. Now, the, this is, there, there has been a history of changes like the iPod Touch one that I mentioned with the camera or, you know, the most famous is in 2007, the story about Steve Jobs close to the end of iPhone 1 development changing from a plastic screen to a glass screen. But all of those stories are very old stories. I, I would think that as time's gone on and as they've mastered what an iPhone is and how to develop for it, that a lot of these things get locked a lot earlier. Right. I mean, how many iPhones did they sell the first year? I think it was something like a million a quarter. I mean, it was, it was a, um, by today's standards, it was a very small product when it first came out and it, it grew, you know, incredibly fast. But when they first developed it, they had the room to be able to do things like that. And when you read stories about, you know, the original Macintosh in the eighties, you know, there were a lot of things that they were doing sort of last minute and realizing that, you know, just having Ram chips go up in price or things like that, really changing the whole game for them as they're building things. Um, and that, that happens today still. I mean, right now, uh, Samsung is making tons of money on <laughs> storage and memory. Uh, and so Apple has to balance, you know, what the price, what, what price they can lock in on various components. And like you're saying, that all has to be done quite a bit in advance because you can't, you can't really hedge last second the prices of things when um, you're building a hundred and what is it? No, no, it has to be well accounted for much earlier. Devices, yeah. <laughs> How many iPhones so, did Apple sell last year? Was something like I don't know. It was it was huge. It was something like two hundred yeah. billion, wasn't it? We, I I accept that number. So let me let me say this right. No one else had a touch sensor that worked as well as Touch ID, and and Apple was pretty much at their pinnacle of having integrated that into the haptic engine and having it not be a physical button anymore. And so at the top of their game on Touch ID, just like that, they've gone ahead and replaced it. Well. Um, I think another way to look at it is, you know, we're talking about how Apple makes plans sort of in advance and have a strategy. And if you look at the last, it sort of becomes more apparent if you look backwards and you see the things that Apple was developing. It wasn't just like, hey, this year we invented this. And then next year it's like, hey, we changed our strategy to deliver this. That's what Apple did back in the, you know, 90s. Um, and it didn't work out well. And that's what companies are doing today. And that's what Google is doing today with their hardware. Well, but but they, what Apple is doing is different is... 
you know, there's a strategic plan because they have the momentum. App, Apple has a very unique situation in that they can bring things to market quite confident that they can sell it because they have so much experience and they know what people respond to. And they have a, a lot of, you know, experience in doing this. And so they can be quite confident in saying, if we're sure of this, we're sure this is going to work, we can invest huge in making something happen. Where if you look at other companies, don't have the ability to do that. It's not to replace something for the sake of replacing. It's replacing something because they believe they can do it better. Of course, yes. Yeah. And, you know, so, you're saying that Touch ID is great. And there, there are useful things about Touch ID, but on the phone, it really prevents you from having a full screen unless you put it in some, you know, weird location yeah. that... Yeah, it occupies a physical space. It's going to be hard to please a lot of different people because everyone's hand is in a different, different size and, you know... It's a lot easier to have it on the front. But if you can deliver that sort of experience in a better way, this, this whole idea of Face ID has not happened before. I mean, and the closest thing that I know of is Intel's thing that is like a thing you put on top of your PC. It's not this small, and it can't be delivered at this price at, in this quantity. The, the similar, the structure sensor that was built by you know, a third party that uses that kind of technology that um, plugs into your iPad is around $300. So... The, the difference between iPhone 8 and iPhone 10, $300 would, it, it's actually like 370 or something like that. But whatever, it costs more than the difference of two phones. And there's a lot of other things that are in iPhone 10, you know, the screen. And so. So yeah. let's get to your review of it. Tell me about, for, first of all, tell me about Face ID, because obviously that's the one that, that people can immediately identify. That's what makes this phone different. And then talk about some of the things that you discovered that weren't as obvious to you, at least not before you got the phone. What the, the kind of perception that a lot of people who are just like, this can't possibly work. Um, I think the, the original thing was, hey, it must take a long time to do a face ID that you have to like look in the phone for a minute for it to work. Um, but the other one is, uh, it, what proximity to your face does it have to be? And the thing is, if you're walking along, you pull out your pocket, pull your phone in a pocket and you swipe up, it's, it doesn't have to do face ID before you swipe you're not waiting for it so as you bring it up and you look at the screen it's happening as it comes up to you and it's really fast so in in the, that sort of you know typical use case if you pull your phone out and flip it up and it just works that's ideal there are some other situations where um you know you notice that it if it had touch id on it it would be faster and the example of that is if you have it sitting perpendicular to you on your desk or if you pull it out and are holding it sideways because you plan to watch a movie <laughs> and you go to turn it on, it wakes up in portrait mode, just like a phone always has. But um, you, the sensor doesn't work if you have it sideways to your face. You have to have it, you know, not not perfectly squared vertical, but it has to be like within like 30 degrees of that. So if it's not at a, you know, ideal angle, you may have to like look at it. But I mean, it's kind of understandable. I think, I think as time goes on, I think Apple will adapt and, and probably improve the the angle of which you can do it. But that's really, there are some things that come with new technologies that are understandable. There are some flaws that are just like, no, this is not going to work. You know, every, every, the, the new, when the iPhone first came out, when the iPad first came out, there were things about it that were like, this would be more ideal if it had this, but there's so much value everywhere else that it's, it's, I can do, deal with that. There are other things that were not good enough. And when you look at, when you look at it from that perspective, Face ID is, it's as an engineering choice, it's much better than, than having a button on your screen that you have to put your finger on. And it's, it's also an example of one of those things that people complain about something. Um, and then when something new comes along, they complain about that and they wish for the thing that they had before. There are a lot of 
you know, little niggle issues with Touch ID as well. If your hand is too wet, if you're in a cold climate and wearing gloves, you know, I mean, there's just like things you have to accommodate because reality and physics, you know, even, mm-hmm. you know, the waterproof iPhone, if you hold it under water, the screen doesn't respond correctly because technology, I mean, you have to, you have to kind of accommodate things a little bit. And you say, is that, is that expected behavior? Should you be able to use your phone underwater? <laughs> your Apple Watch, you know, also the screen on Apple Watch, if it's, if you're underwater, the capacitance is not going to work because of physics. <laughs> so, but I think most people think that that's a reasonable thing. You know, it's like you have this expectation that if you wear a watch, it should be able to go underwater, ideally. But, you know, I don't know if you should expect to use a touchscreen underwater. Yeah, that part still doesn't work. And what is, you know, how much value is there in, in doing that? I'm sure you could make it work in some capacity, but... Um, so I think on, on a very reasonable level, Face ID is amazing in what it does for authentication. It works really well in practice. And on top of that, the sensor that they put in there to, to handle authentication also does a bunch of other really cool stuff in terms of the face tracking and, and being able... There's a lot of things that Apple can do with this that they haven't exposed yet. And, you know, we're talking about the progression of Apple building on technology in the past. There were a number of things that the Touch ID sensor could innately do because it was, a, it was basically a scanner that took a picture of your thumb. So in addition to like looking at your fingerprint, it could also tell if your finger was moving. So it, it could technically, and actually the company Apple bought it from, they marketed it with having this ability to, to work as like a, a pointing device. You can move your thumb around and you know it's basically a camera looking at your thumbprint. So it, it could be used as a um, kind of like a trackball, solid state trackball. Apple never did that. And I was always kind of wondering, you know, like when are they going to add these other features and allow you to do... Um, you know, they had multiple fingers, but there were some other things that people were kind of expecting Apple to do. And kind of the reason why Apple didn't fully exploit a lot of that and build kind of dependence upon this type of a sensor was because they were planning to get rid of it. I mean, they had an idea of how long it was going to last. They knew that like other technologies, especially, you know, having a camera that could identify you immediately is a superior thing to, to reserving a huge chunk of the front of the phone to put a round button on. So there was a lot of work. I mean, the design of Touch ID was designed, the way it was built, was not designed around a specific sensor, but around authentication in general and making a, a secure, uh, you know, sort of mechanism that they could just instantly replace a layer of. And now everything, all the apps that were designed to work with Touch ID now work with Face ID. Yeah, it's another example of an incredibly smooth transition that they pulled off. Now, what is it like to use unlocking it? Because I read some reviews where people were pressing a button to wake it up and then swiping up and waiting while they saw the uh, lock symbol change to an unlocked symbol. And that seems to me to be the the incorrect way to do it. What's the right way? Um, So one of the things that's new on the phone that I like is that you touch it to wake it up, just like an Apple Watch. Um, It's almost kind of weird that that phones didn't do that before. But um, if you do it, you could do a touch swipe you can do touch swipe up holding the phone. If the phone is off and it's in your hand and it's sort of up already, you have to do that or else press the button, which is a little bit awkward. But if you do touch swipe, it's like a really fast process that gets you. So that's that kind of shows off the longest period of time that it takes Face ID to work because you do this really fast touch swipe gesture and then it's like face unlock, boom, lets you in. If you pick the phone up, if you pull it out of your pocket, you can swipe it as it's coming up and then it's kind of in the same place. That's raised to wake kick right. in. So basically, if raise to wake kicks in, all you have to do is swipe up from the bottom and it unlocks. Yeah, it's really smooth. I mean, it's it just happens. There are a couple of times where I've um, you know been laying in bed or, or sitting at a table and it's kind of at an awkward angle next to me. And it comes up and it says, enter your passcode. And if you just turn it off and 
um, or cancel it and touch swipe it again, it, it lets you in. So it's not something that you'll never ever get presented with a passcode. But if you think about how many times we unlock our phones all the time, which is ideal, that's the whole point of biometrics on, on a mobile device. That's the, the value of it is that it lets you have a passcode on your phone that you don't have to actually enter so that you actually have it set up because it's very So is it kind of like, does it feel sort of like going back to the days where you didn't have a passcode set where it's that fast to just be into it? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it feels like. It, there's not usually a feeling of a process happening. There are a few times, like when you use Apple Pay or if you're buying something within an app, the, the UI on the phone actually says, push the button here, <laughs> you know, tap, tap, double tap it. It's kind of like the touch bar. There's a little indicator on the side that's like, double tap this button. And when you do that, then it's then you see the little animation icon. It's like, doop, and it processes your purchase. But also with, with so Face what? ID, it's not like you have to hold it up and look at it and then put it on the terminal. It's it's kind of a thing of, it's if it's in the proximity of your face and you have it at kind of normal distance it just sees you there and in testing like uh trying to get it to um reject by you pick up your phone and point it at somebody else um it there's kind of a moment where it's saying it doesn't like immediately say say you know strike one two three now we're locked you bring it up and point it at somebody else and it says uh uh-uh. and you have you have kind of like try it again on yourself it doesn't just immediately say like oh i see this person that person that person okay now i'm locking on your phone <laughs> so it's not something that locks you out in that sort of sense. So if you're, you know, if you're pulled over or trying to cross a border or something, you have to actually do the thing where you intentionally lock the phone. What are some of the other things that you've discovered? What are some of the things that you, you know, you, you said you'd prepared a list of things you wanted to evaluate in your review beforehand. What were some of the things that you didn't even know about to add to that list? What are the things that, that we should all um, be aware of? So one of the things that didn't occur to me, so when you're doing the live blog, people are like, where's reachability? And I was kind of like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't ever use that. And I had to look it up on the phone call. I think somebody told me how to do it. But um, yeah, it's a feature you enable. And then when you have reachability on, I, I again, I like don't really use it. But um, it is something that Apple still puts on the phone. And you know, I, I can imagine uh, there'll be times when you'd use it. The thing is that Touch ID in the home button was getting so many, there were so many um, actions being layered on top of it that you, know, you do a single click and a double click and a triple click and and it's right there. And it's also the way that you log in and, and everything. So I think it was just so much activity um, layered on top of it. There would be times where I would be intending to double click or you think like, how do you do Apple Pay? And I would like double click in it. And then my screen goes to black and white because I opened that accessibility feature instead. Uh, I think it's better to have things you uh, intentionally do. Things like Apple Pay where you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. Do, do, um, or in-app purchases or things on that side button, that makes sense. It also is the same way that the watch works, like invoking Siri, you hold it down and it, it, it's very much like a watch in that you touch it to start it up, things like that. Whereas the, the lower edge of the display now has a lot going on. So you swipe up, if you turn on reachability, you can swipe down and then you swipe up to unlock or go home. And there's also that little bar across the, so that when you're in an app, you just slide across the bottom of the screen and you open up other apps. So it kind of makes the bottom of the screen pretty hot. So if you're if you're doing too many things down below, um, it's easy to start doing unintended things. Um, but Apple's really changed a lot of the UI so that that little bar, that there's so much screen that that little bar can be down there, can be this hot bar that does all kinds of stuff. And the the UI that you're actually working on is a little bit above that. So it is, I think it's really well designed as how it's laid out. The, the other things that I saw that felt a little bit rough are some of the uh, UI elements seem to be kind of crushed on the screen a little bit in some areas and some of 
just like how things are laid out. Um, and that's something that just needs to get polished a little bit. Um, the, the other thing that really jumped out at me is something new. And I, I don't know if I just didn't see this during the keynote or what, it's kind of embarrassing, but one of the things that really irritates me has irritated me is about background tasks, because when you have, you know, if you have a VoIP call or if you have GPS directions or a screen recording or something, there was that whole bar across the top of the screen that, um, was, you know, was right. The bar would let you know if you were recording something or if you were in a phone call in another app. Yeah. Well, now that is a little oval in one of the ears. In the left ear. So when you have GPS going, instead of having this whole bar across the top, there's like this little oval that appears where the, you know, in the top corner, um, where the clock would be. It's also where location is. And like when you're screen recording, it's a red oval that lets you know that you're screen recording. And you can see like on the, some of the GIFs and stuff, that's, you can see it in that, that we captured. That's how we captured it. Um, and when you're doing GPS driving directions, it's really slick that, um, oval is there if you leave maps there's a little oval there and it shows you like what the next turn is going to be and um then there's also a, a little like hud type display that comes down the translucent thing that says you know your next turn is this street but to jump back into maps you just tap that top corner so that's a really um smart new improvement that i kind of happened on while, while reviewing it that i i'm not sure if they pointed that out that's how it works yeah, I saw that, but I can't remember if I saw that because we covered it in an article or if that was something that was pointed out in the keynote. I don't think that it was. The other thing is that um, there's a few UI changes that it's really hard to go back and forth between phones, especially right now, because Touch ID works so differently than Face ID. And I find myself picking up this phone and like pressing it at the bottom. <laughs> it's like, why isn't anything happening? Why isn't there even a button here? Um, and then also on when I pick up an older phone, I'm swiping it and trying to get in. So it's kind of a mental challenge of, you know, changing ingrained behaviors. It, it ha it's happening really quickly when I'm on the phone exclusively. But I also notice things and I think, is that new? Or has it always been like that? Um, some of the UI is, is different, uh, the layout of things. Uh, like the most striking thing on the homepage is that the dock has rounded corners. So the app, the four app icons that you have at the bottom have a rounded rectangle that sort of matches. It really perfectly matches the rounded corners. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know if people are noticing as much that, I don't know how obvious that is to everybody. There's some certain things that I'm like, wow, that is actually really cool that they have a, a rounded display like that. And it's kind of ballsy because it's like, if you made a television that the corners are round, people would be like, what? I have to see the, I'm missing the pixels in the corner. Um, so it's kind of like, we, we just totally changed how the face of, we just kind of broke the rules, you know, <laughs> this is supposed to be a square box and we made it round. And then we have it on the top and there's something that come, comes down and this notch that comes down that um, people try to be upset about. It's kind of hard to notice when you're actually using it. And when you do notice, it's kind of cool. It's kind of like, this is just how it is. You know, like this is a... So how hard was it to get used to doing swipes from different directions than it had been using the home button, for example, or, or the swipes that were normal for the other, for the home button models? Uh, do you mean how fast... Is your brain switch over? Well, or, I, like the biggest thing is that when you're using a, a phone with a home button or an iPad, that button is orienting. So when you turn it sideways, it's still under your thumb and it works the same. And Touch ID kind of works sideways. So it's like all those things are, um, the home button doesn't change. So that's kind of a good thing. And it's also kind of a bad thing. Uh, on on the new phone, when you hold it sideways, the, the idea of home changes to the bottom of the screen. Uh, so the home indicator line moves right with the rotation which obviously makes sense you wouldn't 
Right. Why would you draw it vertically on the However, side? However, there are certain apps, and for example, like you go to Facebook or you go to the even the homepage, it, there is no horizontal, um, you know, default horizontal e- interface for either of those. So you have to flip the phone, or you have to, uh, if you want to flip back out of into another app. Um, so let me say that again: if you're horizontal in, say, the web, and you sw- swap over and you're in Facebook, to get to the next app, you have to like swipe up on the right edge. You know, you're using the bottom of the screen is is now at the side because it, it and that's because those applications don't yeah they, they respect the orientation. They don't expect rotation, right? Or they don't they don't support it, yeah. Which isn't weird, but it's like it, it's very intuitive. I mean, you understand what's happening because you have this indicator on the screen, so it makes sense. And then if you swipe, basically, if you swipe um, across, holding it sideways, you go into your next app, and if it handles, um, if it's horizontal, then you're back into horizontal mode. So there's nothing that's like terribly confusing about it because of that indicator. I was kind of wondering how irritating that indicator would be that it's on all the time um, when you're watching a movie or something. It fades away, but it's actually nice to have an indicator there that suggests what you should be doing. The other indicator that pops up, like when you first set up the phone, is a little indicator under the status bars or the status items in the top right ear. There's like a little indicator that says, you know, this is where control center is going to be. And after you pull it down a few times, it seems to go away. But it's kind of like a little hint of like, here's what to do. Training wheels. Yeah. You know, Apple has been telling developers to make applications respect the rotation and, and have orientations for landscape and portrait and to work in all four orientations since 2010. That 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 was introduced when they updated the human interface guidelines for the iPad. Does it say you're, you're supposed to, like you have to? I think they say you, you should. I mean, they, they, they make... It, it doesn't... It doesn't... Well, so there's a difference between the human interface guidelines and the rules for acceptance into the App Store. And so it's not a rule in the App Store. Yeah the way which would be hard and fast and enforceable thing it's guidance given in the human interface guidelines okay so they they have always for since 2010 advised that your application barring specific needs should respect the rotation and be able to rotate in any orientation and and you see that's right there are the applications like the ones you named that don't respect orientation at all the- that does support rotation. Yeah, some of the biggest apps, I mean, the most popular apps, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Right. And then there are ones that only support them in two directions, right? If if you hold it vertically with a home button at the bottom, or, or let's say it on a phone that doesn't have the home button, with the uh, earpiece speaker at the top, right? And if you rotate it one direction, 90 degrees, you know, like counterclockwise 90 degrees, it'll support that version of rotation. But if you do it the other direction, clockwise 90 degrees, or uh, invert the phone, that it won't necessarily support those rotations. Hmm. And so there are violators of this, this guidance all over. um, Are you saying landscape on one side, but not the other? Correct. I can't think of any And also portrait, but not inverted. I have encountered this and it happens and it's You mean some that force you into landscape? Yeah, there's a lot of games and stuff Uh, that are you know, naturally. Right. Game, games and stuff force you into landscape. And of course, movies make sense as well. But, um, actually I was doing the you know, your, your Twitter application for crying out loud ought to be able to support orientation in all four directions. Um, okay. So on, I don't think iPhones go upside down, do they? Cause iPads do. They do. Surprisingly, yeah. they do. Well, oh, yes. iPhone 10 does not for obvious reasons. Ah, I, I, iPhones eight and before go upside down just fine which is always handy in, in cars and situations where you've got it stuck in a cup holder and a cable plugged into the lightning port kind of thing. 
Anyway, never mind. But but the advice has always been that you should support rotation in every which way. I need to look and see if the Higgs updated to say sure that about, about that. Uh, I know yeah, that there are situations where you can go upside down. But like yeah. I'm looking at my eight, and when I flip it upside down, it doesn't do that. But it certainly doesn't well, do it on the um, on the ten because on, right the notch, you have a notch right? and if you yeah that would be a little wonky because that's designed to be at the top all the time or the side and Apple's. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that Apple can do things like this. They can make a screen that's like this, you know, oddball shape and do something like the notch and they can support it in software and they can come out and say, developers, here's what you need to do to handle this phone. And developers know that tens of millions of people are going to buy this phone and it's not a one-time thing. They're going to use it for you know, years. And in fact, you know, a series of phones in the future are probably going to look the same way. Um, and Apple has only changed the... Like I said, Apple's only made dramatic. Apple's only made changes of any kind to the screen, apart from like you know technology changes like True Tone or things like that. They've only changed the the resolution or shape of the phone size. This is the sixth shape ever, and that's including the you know six and six plus as being separate ones. So it's the fifth time, I guess, that they've introduced phones with a different size or shape and said, "Hey, developers, you have to accommodate this new thing." So that's. Um, it makes sense for developers to immediately support. We're already seeing like the first, it hasn't even come out yet, and a ton of developers are releasing app updates for this to accommodate the, the screen size and to like look perfect on the screen. That happens because of Apple's very careful um, deployment of new things. If, if every six months Apple came out with some quirky weird thing that developers had to accommodate, it'd be very difficult for anybody to do that. And that's, I mean, that's effectively what Android does. I mean, Google comes out with new stuff and, you know, small phone, not small, but, you know, significant phone makers have all kinds of different products that have different sizes and whatever. And Android is like, oh, you just do this kind of generic shape and it fits everything. Well, that's not, it doesn't actually fit everything. Tablets have never really taken off as a a good app platform because they're just running smartphone apps. And the other thing is that, that individual licensees can't do really creative things like this because who would, you know, custom support a specific feature? And even, you know, if you... Yeah, if, if you're getting thrown new requirements every week, you can't keep up. Yeah, so that's... And you'd be you'd be demotivated from keeping up as well, right? Yeah, and there would be no cost-effective reason to. I mean, the fact is, you, you know, it's pretty hard to make money on Android at all, even if you're just making a very generic app that, you know, is selling ads. And if you do all the work, it's, you know, there is some work involved in making everything look perfect on a specific device. If you did that for every generation of just the high-end flagships, you'd be doing, you know, every company makes a couple and if they all had like some interesting screen shape or, or something like that and you had to accommodate for it that's uh, you know for all these different companies that you have to decide whether to support them and um i'm kind of talking about the screen but it also applies to a lot of other things so if you put some specialized hardware on it where whether it's a fancy camera or some uh, specialized silicon on the chip that does something novel to expect developers to to really optimize for all those different things it just doesn't work I mean, that's not going to happen. Yeah. That's what Samsung is trying to do. So, I mean, they're, they're trying to get developers to do things that only work on Samsung phones. And, you know, developers are kind of like, eh, you know, why would I do that? And, and Samsung makes half of Android phones by volume. Probably more than that if you, you know, think of China as being a separate market. Because there's, there's a lot of developers that only make things for the Chinese market or only make things for the non-China market. Okay, so... Looking at the current version of the human interface guidelines, and remember, I was remembering this advice from the 2010 human interface guidelines, which were written specifically to accommodate the introduction of the iPad back then. 
So the guidance that's current is that if your app supports both portrait and landscape modes, it should launch using the device's current orientation. If your app only runs in one orientation, it should always launch in that orientation and let people rotate the device if necessary. Unless there's a compelling reason not to, an app in landscape mode should orient itself correctly regardless of which direction the device was rotated, left or right. I just got a, I just got a text that said Apple sold 46.7 million iPhones. Yeah, and that includes the first week of iPhone 8 sales. Incredible. It says if it's essential your app run in a single orientation, support both variants. So if you run in portrait mode, you should be able to rotate it upside down, except on iPhone 10, which doesn't support upside down portrait mode. Okay. So there you go. iPhone 8 and 8 Plus became the two best-selling iPhone models at launch and have remained there every week since. That's what Tim Cook just said. <laughs> That's... Did, he, did he also say, let me guess, did he say <laughs> regarding iPhone 10, we're making them as fast as we can? That's incredible. <laughs> well, I mean, that's actually interesting because, you know, when, when iPhone 8 came out, all the, you know, tech nerds were like, no one's going to buy this, everyone's going to buy the 10. And, you know, we said, you know, come on, I mean, you're in a bubble of ridiculousness that you swim in every day. Well, there are a lot of good reasons why you should buy the 8 or 8 Plus. Yeah, and like a lot of reviewers, um, I think you wanted to talk about Apple's review policies and how they're changing yes, and stuff. Yes. But um, one of the things is... People who write reviews for the tech audience that has historically kind of been who Apple's had covering their stuff write to an audience of themselves. And they do not seem to have a really clear idea that they are not representative of the majority of the people on earth. <laughs> Which I, I find kind Funny of, how that works. And the things that they decide are like a really big deal are never a really big deal. And that's why they're consistently wrong. If you go back and read like most people's reviews over time, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm kind of like generalizing. They, they don't hold up really well. If you look, Some of them do, but many of them do yeah, not. Yeah, but if you look at the people who are writing about how it was going to take over, they were getting it wrong every year over and or over and over again. And I, you know, I'm glad the, that I was right. The sky is falling because of the headphone <laughs> jack or um, the, the device doesn't have a physical keyboard, therefore it will never succeed or any of the things that people have written that haven't held up, right? right? And I think part of that, I mean, it's, it's hard to generalize, but... A lot of it is people want to believe something. They, they don't, there were a lot of people that just didn't like the idea of Apple being successful. And maybe it was like any, any specific company. There were people that felt the same way about Microsoft. Um, so there's, there's kind of like an underdog thing of, you know, that totally makes sense to say, hey, here's an upstart company that probably doesn't have great chances, but we're, you know, we're going to root for them and try to get people to give attention to this, this new thing people are trying. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But, um, it's interesting that that was never really accorded to Apple. Like when they got in the phone business and people are saying like, oh, they're not going to walk in. And, you know, there's no yeah, possible way that they're going to sell, you know. And part of that was just sort of like, it was such a crazy thing that Apple did that they entered the phone market. Because I was writing about this stuff when that happened. So that, oh, yeah. was, that was a really crazy thing that, I no, I don't think Apple thought that we're going to do that. I mean, I certainly didn't think that Apple was going to, go from where they were to where they are now. So let's let's ask you, what are the changes in Apple's reviewer policies? How has that changed from years before? Um, I don't know about policy. I'm, I'm t you're talking about kind of like how they, how they rolled it out? Exactly. You know, we're sort of navel-gazing here, but the, the people that are covering this, this phone are a little different in character than in years past. Would you agree? Yeah, I think media is changing dramatically. And you have... You have less of a an authority of the media 
because people don't get their news from a newspaper or a magazine. People don't even look at paper anymore. And on the internet, there's a, a great equalizing effect where if you're on a web page and you click a link and you go to another web page, you don't get the sense of like, this site is legitimate enough to have, you know, be publishing their stuff on paper. You know, back not even too many years ago, legitimate stuff was printed and that required some effort to do. It's kind of like the difference of mail and email. You know, anybody can send you spam. And on the internet, anybody can write stuff. And with YouTube, I mean, that was the whole premise is like anybody can put video out there. And on, on one hand, that made people that were sort of aligned, and I speak for myself a little bit that way, if you're kind of aligned with publishing and you have a standard of how you, you, know, you have to do things to a certain level, you kind of looked with a little bit of contempt upon people that are just throwing out stuff and they don't have to say things correctly or you know, whatever. But at the same time, there's also a demand for that sort of thing. You go on YouTube and there's people that are doing kind of low production videos and they get better and better and better at it. And um, they develop huge audiences. So that's the thing that, whether it's YouTube or Twitter or I've seen stuff on Facebook and Apple's on Instagram, Apple's responding to what people are actually wanting to do, which that's important. And if you look at a company, you know, if you look at companies that are dying, part of the reason why they die is that they're not adapting to how the world's changing. So the fact that Apple is adapting and is doing that, um, it's been seen as being slow to do things in the social world. But when they did get to it, like the stuff that they were doing on Twitter for, with uh, support won awards because it was like, this is a really good way to approach people on Twitter. And um, the kind of marketing that they do is quite savvy. So if you're trying to reach those audiences that you're reaching on those kind of markets, it makes sense to uh, develop you know, public relations that relates to those people. And I think like the old guard, you know, people that have been writing about the Macintosh for the last 15 years, their audience is important, but it's also um, important in a different scale, you know. So if mm -hmm. Apple's doing what they need to do to reach all the people that are going to buy an iPhone and um, some of the, the, the other flip side of that that I'm thinking of is there's kind of become this idea amongst a lot of Mac bloggers that instead of, I kind of felt to me like it used to be a thing where people were excited about technology and now they're just trying to break it. So, you know, when Tesla comes out with a car, people are saying like, how far can I get this car? You know, how, how I'm going to do this road trip and demonstrate they push the how limits far, until the battery yeah. runs out. And well, but in, in that sense, they're not pushing the limits to the battery runs out. They're trying to show how great electric cars can be. Like, look how far I went on this huge road trip and I managed to do it, you know, without, you know, with infrastructure being the way it is. It's like, look at the, the technology that I'm doing. And today, yeah, it's more like, let's make a story about how a Tesla caught on fire, you know? Right. And with Apple, it's kind of a similar thing is, you know, we used to look at iPhones and say, wow, isn't this incredible that you can do this now? And, you, you know, look at how great the web is. Like, look at how Im impressive they, like, made it so that you could browse the web on a mobile device. There was a lot of effort that went into that. And today it's, people are saying, like, oh, touch ID, or the face ID doesn't work if you're shining a bright light into it or if you're in a... Um, if you're in a warehouse with sodium vapor lights or something, it's like, okay, so you may have to put your hand over, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't experience that problem myself. But, but yeah, there was the, I think it was probably on the verge, but the guy has a, holding his phone down at his waist and kind of like irritated that it's not unlocking. And it's like, well, that's not how you use a phone. <laughs> I just think that's really yeah. dumb. Right. It's like that, you know, Ben Gate was like the kind of pinnacle of that where you have somebody that's like, I'm a man with big hands and I can like break a phone just twisting it in half, this precision thin device. <laughs> it's like, no kidding. Yeah. Is that news? Right. So, well, but, but there's this interesting pr 
progression, right? It's it's the progression you were saying from print media to web to to YouTube, where you know in in the original iPhone launch, David Pogue, Stephen Levy, Ed Begg, Walt Mossberg all reviewed it. Of those, the only one to review it this time around is Stephen Levy, and and Walt's retired, yeah, so we you know our, that's our that's why he's retired. out of the game. But but Ed Begg is still writing. Um, David Pogue still writes. There, there is no reason that we couldn't have had more of those, except that that's no longer how Apple wants to go ahead and get the word out on this device. That uh, you know, dragging David Pogue out of the closet no longer is is required to get an Apple launch going. It's um, reaching out to YouTubers. It's putting it in the hands of actor Mindy Kaling. It's putting it in the hands of a twelve-year-old developer and showing him off on Ellen DeGeneres' show. It's yeah, trying definitely. to make sure that you have the widest reach, even if the commentary isn't the tech commentary, because the tech commentary isn't important. And it's anymore. often awful. <clears throat> that too. Yeah. Um, but, but the other thing kind of along the lines of what you're saying, there is a precedent for that because, you know, Steve Jobs was noted for um, kind of stepping out of the tech industry. And, you know, some of the things I remember, um, you know, he had his face on things like Fortune, you know, back when Fortune was like a legitimate magazine. Now it's a terrible website. It's just clickbait <laughs> garbage. I don't know how that thing stays in. It is. Um, well, whenever I see a Fortune headline, I just want to burn my computer. But, um, you know, this, you know, was it originally like a legitimate magazine? And it's a, targeting a totally different audience. And when you're targeting, uh, when you're putting yourself out, I mean, you're talking about social media and, you know, appealing to millennials and appealing to you know, different audiences. Apple has a specific, um, uh, I don't, I don't know exactly what her title is, but she's on the executive committee. I think that she handles China. I mean, China is that big of a. It's not just a big market; it's a different market. It needs somebody that knows, that puts full time into thinking about what's going to be important in China as a market. And uh, also, I just went to the the Jam uh, convention. User, it's a, was last week in Minneapolis having a crowd of people who manage huge fleets of Macs and iOS devices in their companies and targeting that uh, market where it's business people and executives, you have to communicate to them differently because, um, you know, the, the kind of tech review that you and I would probably enjoy reading is not accessible or useful or relevant to somebody whose job is completely different place. Yeah, that's like when we spoke to the professionals at the um, Adorama event that you and I were at. You know, the, they have different requirements and different concerns that they need to address before they deploy a large number of devices. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think Apple's – that's a really difficult task to do all those things and do it well and do it equally well, in particular because some of, some of them have different values. I mean, some of them – there are groups of people who want attention or, or want to be directed attention that are just not that – valuable as a market. Um, sometimes it's, you know, how much commercial value you're bringing in. And on other levels, there's like strategic value. Um, I'm imagining that the market for Final Cut Pro and video developers is not tremendously big. I mean, Apple's software stuff isn't tremendously big. Um, however, it's very important. And the fact that Apple is, you know, working to reach that, you know, there's some people that are kind of irritated about it, uh, that Apple's not doing everything that they want to have happen. But Apple's putting a lot of effort into a market that's, you know, relative to some of their other products is relatively small. Um, but having content being developed on the Mac uh, is really important. And so Apple puts, you know, like an oversized amount of effort into reaching that specific group and kind of catering to what they need and building tools that make sense for them. 
and reaching out into things like you know VR, which was something that they haven't done before. And now they're integrating that into Final Cut. And, and you see there's a lot of interest in uh, what's going on in that area. I just saw a, I was going to write it up, but there's a, a skills index for Upwork that they look at, um, you know, of the 5,000 different things that people could be freelancing in. The number 11 one is Swift, and number 10 is Final Cut Pro. Both are in the top 15 skills that... Um, hmm, that are required from freelancers? Yeah, that have value. That is interesting. <clears throat> so, we, we talked a lot about different things around the iPhone 10 and your review of it. What, what's your summary verdict? Is this the iPhone for you, or are you going to stick with a plus-size device? Personally. So I was kind of thinking about that. I've thought in the past, because I always, I always didn't want to use the Pro or the Plus because it just was, seemed so big. And then um, I was in Hong Kong and my phone was stolen. And so I had to use the Plus. Um, and I never stopped. I never went back. Because whenever I looked at the smaller phone, it was like, that's a nice size, but I'm just really addicted to this bigger experience where there's a lot of things you, you can more comfortably do. And, you know, just looking at pictures... Uh, taking pictures, things like that, your viewfinder is just huge. And it's it's kind of tantalizingly close to being an iPad in your pocket. However, it's really big. And um, it's kind of uncomfortably big to have in your pocket all the time. And to some people, that isn't a problem. But I'm finding with the iPhone 10, it's that perfect size. Um, and it's big enough. It doesn't have the same UI. It's kind of interesting that, you know, when the Plus came out, Apple gave it the extended keyboard and they, they put in two modes, or one mode was basically like, it was the, the same as the 6, but it was like a little, just everything was bigger. And the other one was it kind of packed in more stuff. And when you put it in that mode, the standard mode, so they called it, you also got, when you did a landscape, the keyboard had copy-paste keys and various other things on it. And there were some other things that they did. Uh, they gave it kind of the iPad interface, so that when you're in mail, you see your stuff in the background, and the draft is kind of like a floating sort document. Of a split screen yeah, view. And multiple panes. Um, they're downplaying that. So with iOS 11, that whole extended keyboard went away. And I'm not sure why. I mean, if it's just people weren't using it or whatever. But I mean, the reality is, is the the iPhone Plus is just not quite big enough to be an iPad. So there's a lot of UI stuff that doesn't quite make sense. I mean, I don't think you could ever get drag and drop to be like, I think it's just too small for that kind of interface. So the new phone goes in a different direction. Instead of just being bigger, it's taller. And by new, I mean, that's the same thing they did with iPhone 5. They took the 4 and just made it taller. And mm -hmm. this is like a little bit wider as well. So it's like almost a plus and you feel differences. You know, if you're looking at the web or, or whatever, there's like, you know, slightly less that you're looking at. And Right. But it doesn't have the same UI as the plus size device right. does in landscape mode. Right. But it also has some other things that are, you know, more expanded. So um, like in, in general apps, when you're looking in portrait, in tall mode, the default mode, uh, when you pull up a keyboard, it shows you the uh, the keyboard selector and dictation are not keys anymore. They're like buttons on the, on, they're like buttonless buttons. Uh, they're below, they're kind of in the area where the home button would be. So they're pulled off the keyboard. So all the keys can get bigger. And in landscape mode, uh, that's even more obvious. It's like a bigger keyboard than the plus. And when you pull up emojis, for example, you're getting all, there's like one line of emojis. There's something like 26 or something lines of emojis across. So you're seeing a lot more than with the, the standard eight is what I'm trying to say. Uh, so there is an expansion of things, but it's not in the direction of the plus. It's this kind of more breathing room in the top and the bottom. 
and you see more content, whether it's Twitter or YouTube or whatever, when you're in vertical mode. So the kind of thing I was saying in, in my review was we have a different way of dealing with work and documents than we do with entertainment. And with work and documents, we've, we always kind of have things, you know, like um, if you think of a magazine or, or A4 paper, or, you know, if you get really, really work, you are working in a legal size pad, it's that tall format because that makes sense on a desk in front of you. And on the Macintosh, the, the idea of documents was always kind of this tall thing. So the scroll bar was, you know, by default on the side and you're scrolling through this document that's infinitely long. Um, that makes a lot of sense when you're sitting at a desk. And when you're uh, on a computer or when you're on the iPhone, it also makes sense when you're doing kind of work things or researching or whatever to have it in tall orientation. Uh, when you flip it sideways, that's ideal for iPod stuff, you know, watching movies or um, playing video games, stuff like that. And it seems like it should be good for working with documents, but, you know, the web is of... It's great how much you can do on the web on a, on a small mobile device, but it's not... Um, it seems like there's... If you're doing something that's kind of work-oriented, you want to have it in tall mode. And the thing about iPhone 10 is that it's taller... So it's, there's more to work on. And then when you flip it sideways, it's wider. So it's more entertaining. You know, you have your photos and you can like blow them up and it, and it looks like this really wide vista that's kind of dramatic. So that's, it's kind of an interesting uh, progression where, you know, you, you look at Samsung, it's just every year they get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like, well, what, at what point are you going to stop doing that? And it's really not driven by this is what, you know, this is not how, what people find useful. It's the fact that, Samsung makes displays, and so they're finding a use for their bigger displays. And so they're just like putting out a bunch of products and being like, what are people going to buy? Where Apple has this, puts more effort into it up front. They're doing a lot of this research and design. And there's a lot of things Apple can do, but they choose not to do. That's their whole thing is, you know, the, the power of no or whatever they said. The mm -hmm. importance of saying no. Because if Apple was just trying a bunch of stuff and putting it out there, they would be failing so much. They On, on one hand, they wouldn't be making as much money. But that also means that you can't uh, put as much effort into getting the things that you are choosing to do right. So it's really a trade-off. When I think in like the you know kind of Android Windows open source idea, there's there's a lack of consideration given to the amount of work that goes into things. So there's just this kind of idea that oh yeah, security is going to be fixed because there's so many people looking at the code, and it's like there's an element of truth to that, but open source software is not <laughs> secured. It, it, it's not something that comes by default. It comes because there are people who are competent and devoted right. and dedicated doing that. And there are a large number of people who use open source software who never look at the code. So you haven't necessarily gained any of that. Right. It, it's, it's not a byproduct that naturally comes. And the idea that like experimentation is great. And yes, it is sort of, um, that's, that's life is it's, you know, the reason we have life is because it's constantly experimenting. However, we don't see one of everything. There are clumps of things that specialize and get really good at being you know a life form and that's kind of similar with products is that if you have a few products and you put a lot of effort into making them really good they're going to be better products than if you just make a slew of things to just try to fill every niche that's has not worked for pc makers they have not been profitable at that and they haven't been made tremendously good computers because all computer makers are now working to make things that look like a macbook mm. I wanted to take a moment and talk about a security thing. There's there's a report from Reuters that talks about the concept of app developers being able to access iPhone 10 face data. Uh, 
And this this report, if if you've heard about it or if you've read it, I just want to let everyone know that that's not at all how this works. That the Face ID data itself is stored in the secure element of the iPhone and is not accessible to app developers. What app developers do have access to is the front-facing camera, the true depth sensor, and APIs that allow them to look at things like what facial expressions that the person in front of the camera may be making. But that's it. There, There is no Face ID data that is accessible that's stored in the secure element. What you have is the ability to lock or unlock an application just as you've been able to unlock or unlock an application if the secure element verifies that the user is authenticated. So this um, this report from Reuters, if you see it, it's misleading. Yeah, it's kind of the difference of uh, reading your fingerprints and then you know taking a selfie of your fingerprints. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, but the, the 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 concept that Reuters is pushing is the concept that Reuters is pushing is um, is really misleading, people your and <laughs> people would, if they believed that, would would believe that the phone is not secure. But that's not the way that this thing works, and Reuters should be ashamed for publishing that kind of uh, inaccuracy. Yeah, that's good to point out. Um, it will be interesting to see what other things Apple does with the front-facing camera, the structure sensor, because other companies, and if you look at what Google was doing with Tango, and I wrote a story about that, um, I think Apple got it right. Trying to, One of the things Apple's good at is figuring out a, a useful um, application of a technology, where Google in many cases acts like a younger Apple. I'm, I'm constantly struck by how much Google acts like Apple of the early 90s, where they just kind of speculatively develop stuff and they hope people will pick it up, and nobody does because they're doing a terrible job of implementing it and supporting it and it, it's just kind of like it's kind of a childish mindset of like not focusing what should people take away from all this well we're talking kind of specifically about iphone 10 it's uh i think everybody I, it was kind of struck me but i think a lot of the, uh, i'm reading other people's reactions to it and a lot of people are saying like this is the next decade i mean it's kind of obviously but um this is a platform that apple's building for the future and if you look backward you see apple's done a really good job of sort of like developing technology in the right direction. There's very, very, very few ways that they've kind of gone off astray and had to start over. It's not never, but where other companies seem to be doing that all the time. And having built that reputation will be interesting to see what Apple does in the future. And one of the things is like what they're going to do with that structure sensor, because you can do a lot of cool things with that in terms of like 3D mapping devices, and not just your face. So technology is getting exciting again. <laughs> Well, Dan, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for doing the podcast. Where, where can we find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N. And, of course, I'm writing for Apple Insider. And we put up Instagrams. You go to Apple, uh, Apple Insider underscore official and follow our graphics. And, uh, of course, Apple Insider has a bunch of stuff on YouTube. And occasionally, I show up and get put next to a turd emoji <laughs> making a stupid face <laughs> that's on the face of the that wasn't my doing but <laughs> well I, i'm victor you can find me on twitter at at vmarks and here on the apple insider podcast and i am looking forward to seeing dan do karaoke and emoji that's all for this week we'll be back next week You've heard me read ads for brands like uh, like Casper, like Spec, like Jamf, like uh, like Harry's, all amazing companies that that really we believe in, 
And these ads are great because they help keep the show free to listen to, and they introduce listeners like you to new products and services that you'll love. It's a win for everyone, and I'm happy to have the help and expertise of Midroll Media to ensure that this show continues to have great advertisers. If you're interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash apple and click contact to let the folks at Midroll know. They also represent other great shows, so you can reach an array of engaged listeners. That's midroll, M-I-D-R-O-L-L dot com slash A-P-P-L-E. And we look forward to bringing your service or product to all of our listeners. Thank you so much.